this particular beat that we now call Ayub is for Zikr. It's not for the czar. You listen very carefully to any of the albums that I have put out. I've put out three albums of czar music. There isn't an Ayub in it. Whether you're a professional dancer or just started falling in love with ballet dance, welcome to the Ballet Dance Live podcast. Here, we are diving deep into all facets of ballet dance world that cannot be found in a workshop or an audience seat. Every week, you will find new, honest, thought-provoking, inspiring, and educational conversation with top leading professionals of our industry. I'm your host, Jana Komornitska, and I'm honored that you are part of our dance tribe. Hello, my dear dancers. Are you ready for a new episode of the podcast? We have today really amazing guest, Yasmin Hengesh. She grew up in Washington, D.C. area, but moved to Europe to work as a professional dancer almost right after graduating from the college. She first appeared in Algerian Calabria, but soon was hired by big-time nightclubs of Paris, such as Le Beirut and Le Yildizlar. There, Yasmin worked with some of the most well-known Arabic stars and musicians of that time, such as Sabah, Ahmed Adawiya, Mohammed Al-Aizabi, and Hassan Abu Saud. Then, she moved to London to work at the Omar Khayyam, the renowned club of Mona Said, where she also worked with master percussionist Kamiz Hengesh. But, of course, the draw to work in Egypt was too great, and eventually she moved to Cairo, where she appeared for two years at some of the prestigious performance venues. During those years, Yasmin enrolled in the American University of Cairo's master's degree in Arabic language, and she did also research on her own, on the Egyptian czar and other forms of Middle Eastern trans dancing. Yasmin moved back to Washington DC in early 90s and danced regularly at the Casablanca restaurant in Alexandria until 2001. Now she teaches various classes for aspiring dancers at her own dance studio as well as online. In today's episode, I really had a hard time trying to choose the topic and the title to describe our overall conversation because it really was the journey across topics, countries, and time periods. We talked about belly dancing in Europe in the 70s and 80s, and I had really surprising discoveries about being a professional ballet dancer back then in those times. Also, we talked about her years dancing in Egypt and why Yasmin decided to come back to Europe. Of course, we talked about her research about Tsar and various trans dances, specifically also focusing on Ayub rhythm and how there are many misconceptions about this rhythm. So I bet many of you also will be surprised, just like I was, to discover nuances of uh, what is the cultural background of this rhythm. And we finished our conversation talking about music copyright issues that all dancers should be aware of. So as you can already see from my introduction, it's going to be 
quite broad conversation giving you a lot of ideas and a lot of information in addition to that Yasmin after we finished conversation also provided a couple of extra additional resources to dig even deeper into the topics that we discussed specifically about Zara and even she put together a separate YouTube playlist for related uh, videos so check the show notes for those resources as well as check out her social media and website announcements because she has two upcoming workshops at the end of this month related to our conversation the first workshop will be on may 22nd about music production and copyright for belly dancers and the second workshop on may 28th about zara both workshops are online and both are a great continuation of studying and researching more for those of you who may be interested specifically in these two topics czar and music production so don't forget check it out but right now you can discover something new and interesting by listening to our today's episode so on this note let's dive in Hello, dear uh, Yasmin. Welcome to the Belgians Life podcast. And I'm so happy that uh, now you'll be a part of our podcast uh, community and one of our guests uh, on the interview. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I look forward to talking with you. Yeah, me too. Looking forward to it. Uh, I typically start every conversation from the very, very beginning. Do you remember the moment when you saw ballet dance for the very first time in your life? Oh, absolutely. It was a very clear image. I was 15 and going to high school, and down the street from my high school was a studio that was just opening up. They put an ad in the paper, and I was looking for a new form of exercise. I had been a gymnast, but I didn't want to do competition because I don't like competition. So I was looking for a place to, to go to get exercise. And at the age of 15, I was too old. Nobody wanted to train a 15-year-old ballet dancer or modern or jazz. At that point, you were really supposed to start your dance training at age two. So then I went to the opening of this belly dance school and they did an exhibit. I mean, she got up and she danced in full costume and she got down on the floor and she was doing all these crazy moves that I had never seen, but I, I knew I could do because I was a gymnast. And I said, oh my God, that's for me. It was a school in Georgetown. Anybody who knows where I'm from, the Washington, D.C. area knows Georgetown very well. Mm. Uh, the woman's name was Adriana Miller, who was a very well-known former in our area at the time. She was a hoot. So that's how I started at age 15. Ah, <laughs> oh, so interesting. And uh, uh, in terms of the dance style, because belly dance by general public, it's viewed by from many different uh, 
there are many different opinions <laughs> in general public. What is belly dance? And there are so many stereotypes. And for you at that time, you were not a part of belly dance community. So you didn't know maybe inside exactly. But uh, have you had any, you know, thoughts or maybe your uh, friends or relatives and you were sharing to them like, oh, I'm doing belly dance classes. What was their reaction back then? That's a really good question. That was in the 1970s. I was very lucky in that my mother and father were very open-minded. And at 15, at any rate, they didn't think I was going to do anything with it. Uh, they were just thrilled I was getting out of the house and wasn't sitting around doing nothing. They didn't really think about that part until three years later when I went off and started dancing professionally. At that point, they started raising their eyes going, there's a lot of things you don't know about this and maybe you shouldn't be doing it, but it was too late. Mm. <laughs> I see. Well, this dance literally took you on a lifetime uh, journey. <laughs> That's for sure. Yes, it did. At some point, you moved uh, uh, away from uh, uh, U.S. to yes. pursue dance career. But what surprised me when I was doing my little research, because typically dancers, they move away from, like, let's say, USA or other countries to go to Middle East to dance. In your case, you first moved to Europe but to pursue belly dance career. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I was traveling in the summer times. I was going to college and I went to France to study French uh, during the summer break. If you've ever been to Paris, you'll know down by the Latin Quarter, which is across the river from Notre Dame. There was a wonderful old section where there were restaurants and there was a Algerian restaurant called the Jazair. And I went in there and I saw a picture of a belly dancer and said, oh, how wonderful. When is the show? But my French was broken at the time. I wasn't speaking very well. And he looked at me. The I had inadvertently come across the owner. And he looked at me and he raised his eyebrow and he says, Oh, you dance. You want to dance? And I said, Yeah, I dance. Yes. He says, Oh, you want to have audition? And I looked at him and I sort of looked at my clothes and he says, oh, don't worry, there are costumes in the back. Go, go put on costume, come out to give me, give me audition. <laughs> I was 18 years old. I said, okay, I'll do this. So I went back there, I put on the costume and I got hired. So in the summers, I went over there and I worked. And then when I graduated, I first went to New York and stayed there for six months, but I really didn't like it because you never see the sun. As you very well know, you work at night, right? So the buildings are so tall. I never saw the sun. It was terrible. So after six months in New York, I said, screw this. I'm going to live in Paris. <laughs> My job was open. So I had work 
and I stayed there. I worked in London, and then it was only after working with the big stars and realizing that Egypt was the home of where I was supposed to be. That's when I went to Egypt. Mm. But that's such a fascinating story. You basically went to, to ask for to see a show, and then uh, you ended up uh, performing that show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the way it worked. Yeah. Ah, that's that's really uh, funny. Uh, working back then, that time, as a ballet dancer in Europe. So, as I understood, you basically worked for a specific restaurant. Was it uh, uh, possible to sustain it as a full time job, or you still had to do like you know as some side gigs to just to 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 make sure you can live normally? <laughs> Oh no, I that's all I was doing. Um the tips were amazing. You have to understand that when I started was at the beginning of the oil boom and the Saudis and Gulf people had were just discovering Europe and they were just discovering money and they were throwing lots and lots of money on the stages and I quickly graduated from the little cabaret where I was on the left bank to the Champs-Élysées. And by the time I, when I got to the Champs-Élysées, the money was very, very good. They gave me a hotel. Really, I had one show a night. I worked at three o'clock in the morning. Maybe it was two. The main star went on at three o'clock and I went before the main star. So yes, I could support myself. I bought lots of lovely clothes and jewelry and and a house. Mm. That's incredible to hear such a difference and contrast because we are talking still about Europe, not like Middle East, uh, where like right now still dancers work on contract, uh, they work with one uh, or like two locations sometimes. I mean, it depends on the country, of course, but if it's a contract work... Uh, uh, when I went to Egypt, I had to work four shows a night, seven days a week in order to feed my musicians. I think at the end of the day, when I was working in Egypt, I made $5 a day. Wow. When That's I was in London and Paris, I made thousands. Wow. That's a contrast. But this was, yeah. only, this was only in a very specific time mm -hmm. in an era when everything was new to the Arabs. They were discovering London. They were just discovering Paris. And that was the place to go to shop. Everybody wanted to go buy clothes in Paris. Everybody wanted to see the clubs in London. But isn't it interesting? It's we are talking about people who travel to Europe, like for shopping or sightseeing, and they still go to Arabic restaurants, even in those countries. <laughs> oh, well, of course. They didn't change their diurnal rhythms. The show didn't even start until, what, 12.30 at night? It was part of their habits. They wanted their food. You know, you love your food. And believe me, the restaurants where I was working at, they had some of the best food in Paris. Hmm. Wow, very interesting to hear about, uh, like, uh, those stories and to see how in relatively short time the situations changed uh, quite a lot. And I can hear the pain of uh, current European dancers probably thinking, oh my God, that's unbelievable. <laughs> 
because that's not not a common thing uh, these days uh, for belly dance no, life. No, yeah. No, no. <laughs> you know, after I came back from uh, Egypt and I went back to to London to get my MBA, even then it had changed. So we're talking the space of maybe seven years or so. Yeah, no, it, it changed drastically in the late 80s. And then, of course, the Berlin Wall came down, and then everything changed. So did you move to Egypt uh, before this kind of change in times, or it was completely different reason for you before, right? Before, yes. So... When you moved to Egypt and you mentioned that you had to work like four or five times more and uh, got like less, uh, have you ever thought, had a thought to come back to Europe? Well, that's what I did. I eventually said, I've had enough of this stuff. Mm. And I also got sick. I, I caught hepatitis from the water and I started turning yellow and I didn't have the energy to do four shows a night. And I looked at myself in the mirror and said, why are you killing yourself? Working in Egypt was very, very difficult. Dealing with the club owners, I did not have a manager. I was the only one taking care of myself. And trying to deal with uh, being polite and still keeping a job, it was rough. And I kept saying to myself, I have a certain amount of time where I can build my career, my life, and then if I'm a dancer, I should really be stopping at age 40. Back then, you know, in the 80s, Mm -hmm. 40 was old. (laughs) Now, it's a little different. But um, back then, 40 was the end of your career. And I'm going, I don't know if this is a wise decision. So I went back to Europe. I made twice as much money. I put myself through grad school, got an MBA, (laughs) and started a business. And that enabled me to dance on the side. I didn't need to work as a belly dancer anymore. But I could just see the writing on the wall. Let's put it that way. Hmm. You also studied in the American University of uh, Cairo. Was it in Cairo, I assume? Yes. So it was still before you went back to Europe, correct? Yes, yes. Why, uh, what moved you to go to university while uh, still pursuing like a dance career and then suddenly university degree in Cairo? It was a master's degree in Arabic. I wanted to know what people were saying about me and what the lyrics were, the songs that I was dancing to. Uh, You really can't perform for people in a culture if you don't speak their language. And to me, the best way to learn the language was to get immersed in it in school. Ah, yeah, because I was thinking about like that, oh, it's a degree in Arabic language, so probably for the like language purpose, but university degree to learn language, it's quite, <laughs> quite intense decision. <laughs> uh, I had my undergraduate degree was in modern foreign languages. I speak 
French and some Spanish and some Italian and now Arabic. So learning languages for me was a gift. I loved it. I There's a lot of being an actor in learning a language because you have to understand the idioms and the cultural references to an expression, for example. Um, there's a lot to learning a language that goes beyond just the order of the words and vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And probably not just in lyrics, but in uh, daily uh, communication to <laughs> these people. <laughs> Well, yeah, when they're counting out your money and they go 100, 200, 100, 100, 100, uh, 200, and you're not fathoming that they are ripping you off. <laughs> no, you have to be on the mark. You have to pay attention. <laughs> so it, it, the, one of the first things you learn in any language is how to count. <laughs> Did you... And then you learn the curse words. Then you learn the curse words, obviously. <laughs> That's the, the second level. <laughs> yeah. The second step. <laughs> uh, did you have any funny uh, stories, maybe in your memory, uh, that uh, people didn't realize that you actually understand what they are talking about? <laughs> all the time. Yes, all the time. <laughs> Particularly when I came back from Egypt And I went back to work in the clubs where I had worked before. And I would stand around and listen to the musicians talking. And they weren't talking about me, per se. They were talking about the customers. And that opened my eyes quite a bit. Uh, But yes. (laughs) That's fun. I also know that during your years in Egypt, uh, you got uh, very interested in uh, Egyptian czar and different uh, trends, uh, dance uh, forms. Um, was it for just the sake of like your own interest, or was there any you know like dance reason to research this topic personally for you? Well. I I have an esoteric bent to begin with. I've always loved the occult. But in in this particular case, uh they use the Ayub rhythm for me a lot because it's their tradition uh, to swing the hair, of course, uh during the czar. And I had very very long hair. That was my trademark. And they would play it the the ayub rhythm for me quite a lot and i would start swinging my hair around and everybody loved that particularly the saudis and they would throw lots of money because i was doing the hair dance so my musicians started to explain to me a little about the whirling dervishes and and then the czar and i was really curious and asked them to take me to some of these places to show me, uh, which Sayyid Hankish did. He was wonderful. If I was interested in something, then he had all the connections uh, to make it happen for me, which was wonderful. So yes, he took me to the whirling dervishes out in the, in the city of the dead in among the tombs. That was cool. And and he also arranged some czars for me, or hadras, 
really. Uh, I didn't want him to oh, organize a full-blown czar with the slaughtering of the animals and anything because I, I just, uh, cruelty to animals, I wasn't going to do that. Mm-hmm. But the Hodgers are cool. Um, among our listeners, we actually have very different, uh, um, very different like dancers, and some of them may be very new to the ballet dance world, not knowing at all what we are talking about right now. <laughs> what is our? <laughs> how would you describe in your? Uh, in your words, like in your perception, like uh, what is Egyptian czar? Uh, not like in the ballet dance world, how we know it often presented as like some, like we just know it's a ritual, but what exactly is it about? Well, uh, I wrote a really long book about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but to give you a short one sentence answer, It is a ritual using drum rhythm to get someone who is undergoing um, psychological stress, depression, hysteria, unexplained uh, malaise, pains, something that modern medicine can't cure. They turn to this ancient African tradition of playing music, slightly different rhythms, and seeing if the person who is sick responds to those rhythms, meaning that they feel this uncontrolled urge to to get up and dance. Each rhythm represents a spirit. Because the African tradition is that spirits enter the body, human bodies, and possess their human beings and cause pain or suffering in some way to let that human know that they're there and they want something. The trick is to find out which spirit, and there's a whole cast of characters, And then once you find out your spirit who's possessing you, then you make a pact with them. Usually women, they marry their spirit, meaning they have a ceremony, and she's called an arusa, which is a bride. And she marries her spirit, and by doing so, marriage to them is a contract where she promises that she will fulfill the spirit's needs and in turn the spirit won't hurt her anymore Hmm. does that make sense yeah that was a lot longer than one sentence i'm sorry (laughs) no but that was very interesting i didn't i didn't know about part of like marrying the spirit i just knew the part that each rhythm corresponds to certain spirit or sometimes called certain genie uh which uh described like as a uh not that good spirit let's say (laughs) and then i just knew that they are trying to identify which one is in the person and then once they identify they keep playing the this beat until it gets out of the person but they didn't know about this uh, part of like getting uh, basically married to the spirit and promising to fulfill uh, its needs uh, that's that's interesting well the czar doesn't have exorcism the czar is not 
exorcism. They believe that once you have the spirit, you have it for life. Mm. And basically you get uh, like those down moments of either depression or any other um, down state that they are trying to cure because you are not in agreement that that's, with that spirit that is inside you. That's basically what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, Zara, is it specifically like Egyptian um, tradition? No, or? it uh, originated in Ethiopia and uh, Sudan. And then in the early 1800s, when Muhammad Ali declared war on Sudan, then you had prisoners and uh, the soldiers going in and out of Sudan. You had this religious tradition, then it creeped into southern Egypt and then made its way all the way down into the harem, into modern day, well, modern day, the 1900s. Uh, it was particularly popular beginning in, really, it showed up in 1860, I believe, was the first mention of a, some a British lady wrote a book. Uh, I can't remember all the details, all of the historical and how it happened and how it creeped into Egypt and all of that is in the book, Transdancing with the Jinn. I can't remember the details, but it happened that it, it came from Sudan. Mm-hmm. And it spread like wildfire through Egypt during the 1900s. Mm-hmm. I asked the question also because I know there are many uh, different trans uh, form uh, trans dances uh, across uh, Middle East and North Africa, not 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 only North Africa that also has this uh, uh, kind of idea of healing the person and uh, healing the spirit inside the person. So that's why oh, I was... absolutely. Wa- <laughs> absolutely. I, I go into all of that. In North Africa, you have special form. In Western Africa, you have the Yoruba. In Central Africa, you have something else. And then, of course, you have all the shamanic stuff that the whirling dervishes use that Trump's taught to Rumi. All the whirling, that was shamanic trance dancing that came from Iran. There are many forms of trance dancing which come up from its shamanic roots. And also the term czar, it's not one specific like... uh... Uh, let's say, I don't know, not even dance, but like a tradition. It's like a group of different things that may be described as a czar. Is that correct? Because I remember like talking to different like Egyptian uh, uh, teachers, scholars, and one thing that I heard about czar is that the idea is that the person uh, like who needs healing, uh, she sits or he sits still, and then whenever... Uh, he or she hears the uh, beat that really makes her want to move it's the signal oh this beat it's kind of like that's the spirit we need to go into this direction 
And another version also I kind of saw and heard uh, and was like explained that, oh, this is also czar. It's like the specific movement with body down and up, which basically makes also your hair go up and down sort of, and you keep repeating it again and again and again and again, and in different tempos and speeding up. That's kind of also czar, but then didn't, that version didn't correspond to like different beats and like what moved, etc. So it's kind of like, it's also trans uh, yeah. form of trans dancing. By both people, it was described as a czar, but they're kind of still different. So czar, it's kind of more as a generic description of the idea of trans yeah. dancing to heal the person. Is that correct? It's a generic word for a group of jinn spirits mm. for a possession dance. Mm-hmm. And... What you're talking about now are all the technicalities of what goes on during this ceremony. But in the global term of czar, that's the word they use for this specific species of jinn. I see. It's called red spirits, and they're a type of jinn. And these jinn were thought to originate in Ethiopia and Sudan and and then it went into Egypt. But yes, what you said is what I was trying to say. <laughs> they sit still, they listen to the rhythms, and when one particular rhythm makes them want an uncontrollable urge to dance, and they get up and they dance, that is the sign that they have found the individual czar spirit, its mm. rhythm. The head tosses, all of that, uh, I explained that in three different chapters, all of the techniques to trance dancing. Mm-hmm. The head tossing is what destabilizes your inner ear. It makes you dizzy. It puts you in a state of trance. A state of trance is basically when your brain waves are lowered from our normal conscious beta You sink from beta to alpha to theta, but you're still awake. And it's this slower brainwave function that is called trance. And when you are in this trance, you are better able to process subconscious hurts. Your repressed feelings and emotions or memories or whatever, they they live in theta. And at that point, when your brain is cycling predominantly in theta, it allows you to relive and reprocess memories or feelings that you had repressed and had gone into one part of the brain, which is uh, governed by the amygdala, and reprocess it and put it in a different part of your memory that's third-party objective, which allows you to heal. It's a healing dance. It's a subconscious way of processing traumatic memory. Mm. Uh, What is uh, your approach to czar as a performance? Because from time to time in Belladin's world, we do see a staged, uh, basically, Called like czar performances. Uh, what is uh, uh, your approach in this topic? It is somebody's religion, okay, 
I mean, the people who do this, they respect it. They believe in their czar. They believe in their spirits. So you must always look at it as a religious experience. It is not something that you want to portray lightly. If you're going to do it, you should do it with your eyes wide open, knowing that it's somebody's religion. In the same way you wouldn't want somebody making fun of your religion or casually praying your religion without respect, right? Yeah. Uh, I also know very, I heard very interesting point that, uh, so we connect uh, Ayub to Zar very often because it's one of the rhythms that also is used in Zar rituals, uh, but also Ayub is a very common rhythm in belly dance in many Baladin songs and including drum solos. And I heard a very interesting opinion, which I personally don't even know like uh, how to approach it exactly. But the opinion was that when we hear in drum solos, uh, Ayub finale, like at the end, we should not really use our hair because this is not czar, so it would not be correct. <laughs> I don't know, like, what's uh, your approach? Because you mentioned that you were, like, when you heard Ayub, you were swinging your hair, uh, like, uh, a lot. But after, like, deeper research, maybe into Zar traditions, uh, do you still feel it's appropriate? Or it's something that we should avoid doing in, like, you know, just regular Baladin songs or drum solos if you just hear Ayub maybe not referring to the Zar tradition? <laughs> All right, let me dispel some of this erroneous information here. Mm -hmm. The Ayub rhythm, Ayub is the name of Job. It is the Arabic word for the prophet Job. It got its name because of a television program in the 60s about Ayub, Job. There was a famous song that was written for this, and everybody wanted to dance to that song because of this particular beat. But this particular beat that we now call Ayub is for Zikr. It's not for the czar. You listen very carefully to any of the albums that I have put out. I've put out three albums of czar music. There isn't an Ayub in it. Mm -hmm. Ayub... It's for zikr. And zikr is a different kind of trance dancing. Zikr is an Islamic trance dance. Zikr is where you toss your head as well. I explain all of this in the book. But Ayub is originally used for the men's gathering of zikr that they do in mosques and things like that. And they do head tossing forward and back and side to side, uh, all of the techniques are listed in the book to put themselves into trance, to put themselves into this theta state so that they can be closer to God. Because being in trance opens the door to allowing the presence of the Almighty to come in. That's why they do it. But Ayub is not a czar rhythm. It's a religious Muslim rhythm. You can swing your hair because that's what it's for. And that irregular heartbeat of it 
that's why it is so profound to people when they listen to it and it's it's mesmerizing is because it it kind of replicates the heartbeat mm. da-dum, it's a syncopated rhythm yeah so true. so <laughs> for belly dance they have always used that rhythm because it's one of the few rhythms like malfou that can be made faster and faster and faster, which is how you would end your show. You don't want to end your show. It's boring. You you want to end your show with a bang, right? So they keep making it faster and faster and faster and faster until they put the tremolo in and your final whack on the tabla and you all end together. It's a, a, a climax and Ayub is good for that. Mm-hmm. But malfoop is usually what they use. Yeah, so in this case, if we hear, like, let's say, Ayub finale in the song, in Paladin's song, would it be still appropriate to use hair tossing? Or should dancers get, like, different creative approach on it? <laughs> in my experience, watching the dance shows of the great dancers in the 80s, nobody did hair tosses then mm. which is why when I did them it was so unusual a lot of times they were wearing wigs you don't necessarily <laughs> want to toss your wig off um, grunt finale yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly mm-hmm. <laughs> that'll make them remember the end of your show <laughs> <laughs> but you would usually do fast hip work and and then you would do a spin you know and and you would end your spin all together uh ta-da all this extra hair work that they put in it wasn't really even addiction mm. i don't know where they got it from it all started showing up in the 90s Oh, that's interesting, because I considered always like it's one of the typical finales for songs and drum solos. If it's a youp speeding up, you can use your hair, and then there is the whole structure for like this finale to finish together with the musicians and band. Uh, but it's very interesting to hear uh, very new and eye-opening information. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that we have already intrigued all our listeners right now about researching more into czar and more into trans dancing, uh, because if uh, if they discovered, if you discovered so much new information in this like last 10-15 minutes that we are talking about this topic, we can only imagine uh, what uh, people can read in the book. So I just want to remind uh, that your book is called uh, Trans Dancing with the Gene, the Ancient Art of Contacting Spirits Through Aesthetic, Ecstatic uh, Dance. And uh, um, I think it's available like everywhere, like on Amazon and all other like book sources for people to research more. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Along with producing uh, books, uh, you also produced uh, music CDs. And uh, uh, you first uh, started producing music, if I'm not mistaken, in 2005. So after you came back from Egypt, you contacted musicians in Egypt to release their traditional uh, music. What uh, inspired you to do it and uh, why suddenly to 
uh, think about producing your own CDs, uh, like producing music uh, on your own as a dancer. <laughs> It's linked in in a great way to what the business that I I started after I stopped my professional career of of belly dancing. I became a um, I worked as a film distributor in France. So I was very aware of if I wanted to make movies, I needed to have my own music. As now everybody is discovering uh, when they want to put their things up on YouTube. Well, I discovered that <laughs> in the early 2000s because I was already making videos. I came out with a one of the first belly dance videos that was available on the market when Amazon was starting called A Night at the Casablanca that I did with Artemis Marat and several other famous people here in the Washington, D.C. area. And because there weren't too many uh, videos out at the time, we sold a lot of them. It sold all over the U.S. And I realized at that point, this was, I think it came out in 1995, somewhere around there. And it was at that point that I started to realize that I had to figure out a way to own my own music because I couldn't afford to pay the royalties or the rights that the music owners were asking me for. I said, screw this. I had musicians in, in Cairo that were more than happy to record music for me. And I got in contact with the Sayed Henkish to start doing this so that I would own the rights to my own music. Mm. So interesting. So it basically was uh, uh, for copyright reasons to solve this issue, but it uh, ended up in such an inspiring and interesting <laughs> project. The copyright of music, it's a theme that is still uh, a pain point for many dancers uh, these uh, days. And of course, we are not talking about Hollywood producing Hollywood movies, but even YouTube videos or like Instagram, Facebook videos, uh, many dancers struggle these days that all oh, the music either is muted uh, or the video is uh, completely taken out from social media, uh, etc. So in terms of uh, uh, music copyrights, especially these days in the online world that we produce a lot of like videos and dance content, um, and you obviously, you definitely have a, uh, Uh, big experience in this uh, like topic starting already from 2000 beginning of 2000s thinking about this issue uh do you have any tips or suggestions for dancers what they should keep in mind while dealing with uh music copyrighted music that they they don't own themselves Uh, this is a complicated subject. I should probably write a book on it, but uh, I'll, I'll try and be as brief as possible. As I'm not being good at being brief, but... <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, there are several ways to go about it. For YouTube, the way the music has, scene has evolved now is that there are companies who allow you to use their music and they get... Uh, the ad revenue that is generated or the uh, pay-per-play. Now uh, Congress will soon pass 
more laws standardizing how much a streaming play is worth. And so anytime any company like Google for YouTube or uh, Facebook for uh, Instagram or any of that, they use music, they must pay a fraction of a penny every time that music and and they make up their revenues through ads. So you have a choice. You can either use a piece of music where um, the content owner, uh, the music owner, copyright owner, uh, allows you to do that. And they make money off of the fact that people are watching your video and listening to their music and they get paid when people listen their music. For example, uh, on my YouTube channel, I get to see the results and am paid every time somebody uses my music to perform on YouTube. So you find a song where the copyright owner is okay, or you make your own music. Now, how do you make your own music? First of all, live music, you have to figure out which songs are public domain. And uh, the copyright laws in Egypt at the moment are 50 years after the death of the lyricist and the composer. There's two portions of each song. If the song has lyrics, then you have the lyricist and the composer. If you're just using music only, it's only the composer. 50 years if it's Egyptian, 70 years if it's anywhere else after their death, or 95 years if it's owned by a company. Then it's public domain. And then you just get your musicians to play the song, and that's your song. Or you go to Cairo, you hire a composer to make you music. And I've been working with, uh, say, at Hankish, for example, composed a lot of the, the songs that are on my albums. Mustafa Onos that I'm working with in Venus Studios. He does wonderful work. There are people that you can go to and you can pay them to create music for you. And then you own that music. And you can dance to it anytime you want to. But the cheapest way to do it is to find the folkloric songs that are considered public domain and to use something like that. For example, Lama Bada, that's public domain. That song is, is, is what, 500 years old, 400 years old, something like that. Many of the folk songs, they're public domain. Yeah. Do your homework. Find out what the copyright is. Yeah, but at the same time, the social media, it's so tricky. Like you just mentioned Lamabada. It was funny for me because we have our band in Toronto and we recorded a version of like Lamabada and one more song like that, like also in public domain, posted a live performance on YouTube and received a notice of copyright because some companies still declared it as a their like copyright uh, ownership. <laughs> So it's funny. Oh, I even you had that. Yeah, I know. Like you I even had a that. I even had a funny story from our friend musician about those companies who um basically what happened, he 
recorded his drum solo improvisation, put it on YouTube. A month after it, he receives a notice of copyright, uh, like that someone owns that music. And then he can't, he can't understand because like, how can it be? It's a, uh, it's a improvisation. It's my own improvisation. Like who can, <laughs> who can own it? And then basically what uh, ended up discovering is that there are a bunch of companies around the world who go or search on YouTube specifically, uh, mm-hmm. but other social media, mm-hmm. they, if they see the music was not claimed, they file a claim that they, they basically grab the music, they license it, and then they put it on YouTube request so they can receive uh, revenue from ads that were on that videos. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Bingo, it happened to me too. They did it to one of my songs and I fought it because I had already sent off the copyright here and the album and uh-huh. they couldn't argue with me. Uh-huh. But you have to register your music with the Library of Congress. You have to actually go through it and sign up your copyright because otherwise somebody can take it from you. Yes. Yes, but you if you're talking careful. about new compositions, if you're talking about traditional songs, like it's a traditional song, which is uh, in public domain can, right now. You can fight it. <laughs> yeah. You can fight it. That's interesting. But anyway, something to keep in mind that we are moving in this like new also era that more and more attention will be uh, brought to the copyright of music. Uh, not only music, but for us right now, we are talking about music element. And for dancers, of course, it's also important. And of course, uh, uh, producing uh, your own music with uh, uh, like your own musicians and bands, it's a great uh, thing. But um, obviously, like not... Uh, affordable for many dancers but at least to keep in mind about this nuances that uh, uh, if you're sharing it on like social media someone may claim copyright and how that works something for sure for dancers to be educated about (laughs) yeah so thanks for sharing uh, your tips and your experience and your advices (laughs) Um, in terms of your uh, current uh, dance uh, work and dance activities, so now we are all in this very strange new uh, era of uh, these lockdowns and uh, uh, COVID times that really changed our dance uh, world. For you, a year ish ago <laughs> when everything just started where were you caught in terms of your dance activities and how this current pandemic situation changed your dance uh, life if at all oh wow uh i was like hit over the head by a two by four i had just opened my brand new studio <laughs> Uh, I had spent three years uh, doing the build-out for it. It's in uh, a downtown area here in Bethesda. And it had taken me three years to get the building up to code. Uh, Although I had to replace the main water line. We had to dig up the street. I had to put in sprinkler systems. Oh, my God, it was a nightmare. And... I had opened uh, January of 2019. We were just starting to have these wonderful workshops and 
people discovering our classes and everything was just starting to break into the next level and then COVID hit and they shut us down. Mm -hmm. So my studio got shut down and it's still shut down. I'm allowed to have classes in it of maybe up to five people. And I, I do have two or three classes now that are less than five people. But it forced me to go online. Mm-hmm. It forced me to do all this stuff that I didn't want to do because I'm old now. And to try and deal with new technology and Zoom, the learning curve was deep. It's like Mount Everest. Oh, my God. It was horrible to have to bang my head against my computer screen and go, you son of a... And a lot of other uh, four-letter <laughs> words that I won't say. But... um. So it forced me to go online and now I'm teaching online and I have people uh, that come to me from all over the country and sometimes from around the world. So that's a blessing. And I'm very happy about that. And I wouldn't have done it unless this had kicked my butt to make me do it. And I also, because I was quarantined at home and I hate not having a project and not having anything to do, it forced me to do release the the new album that I came out with uh, in December about Sayyid Darwish and the book about his life and to get the the other album that I'm about ready to release of um, Rada Henkish's live drum solos that we did during his workshops when he came to the studio. And and they are amazing. One of them is 20 minutes long just to, to zone out and trance out and dance around the house for 20 minutes. It's very cool. So I'm thrilled that I was first to do these projects because I'm satisfied and happy now. I feel a sense of accomplishment. And I wouldn't have had them done. I would be playing in my new studio <laughs> instead. Wow, sounds like very, very exciting, actually, and uh, really interesting to uh, to dive in your new uh, CDs and new projects. And uh, for uh, all our listeners, uh, can you please tell where they can find uh, more about your uh, dance activities, about your classes, and also about your, all your books and CDs? Uh, do you have maybe a favorite social media, or maybe you use usually publish it somewhere on the website. Um, My website is called serpentine.org. Serpentine, like the snake, .org. And I have a Facebook uh, page for the music label, which is called Sands of Time Music. Uh, If you're interested in the music, you can like that Facebook page and, and you'll get release dates and tidbits of things that are that I'm coming out with. I tend not to blast people with stuff because I hate it when people do that to me. So I only put stuff up there when I know a date. When I have a release date, then I'll put it up there. When it's finally released, then I'll, I'll announce that. But I'm not one to send out notices every day. Uh, that's not my style. But you can look there. I, I also have a uh, Facebook page for Yasmin Henkish. And I have 
the store where you can buy all this stuff. Oh, of course, it's it's available on CD Baby, but CD Baby only has the the downloads. You can download this music on iTunes or Amazon or Spotify has it for free. YouTube has it for free. It's pretty well distributed now. I've been around for a long time. <laughs> well, I definitely add the links to your uh, website as well as to your Facebook pages to the uh, show notes. So for all, all our listeners who listen now, you, you know you can easily find all links and easily connect to our guests via uh, show notes. I also highly, really highly encourage uh, everyone to visit your website, serpentine.org, because you have a really uh, amazing collection of different articles on a very different topics, including some topics that we talked about, like czar and uh, uh, music copyrights, but also a bunch of other interesting themes covered there. So it's a great also educational resource not only to see updates but to learn something new i really highly encourage all dancers to to go and check it out <laughs> well thank you thank you very much well i would like also to thank you like this hour it uh, uh flew by so quickly <laughs> in one glance at the same time we covered so many different topics and i'm really very uh, thankful and uh, very grateful for you to share uh, not only your story but uh, your knowledge uh, uh, too, and I'm absolutely sure we inspired some of the people to research and dig more into the topics of czar uh, as well as music copyrights and many other <laughs> other topics too. So thank you so much for uh, sharing your your time with us today. <laughs> oh well, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Oh, I'm very happy. And uh, to sum up our conversation, I would like to ask you our uh, traditional question of the podcast. We have one question that I ask uh, uh, absolutely all our guests, regardless of what we talked during the uh, interview. And the question sounds, uh, sounds like this. What makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again so you keep doing it for so many years? Oh, the emotional relief. Hmm. I, I have never done choreography in my life. It was never something that we had to do with live music. We just had to dive into the music and live it and feel it. And in the process of feeling that music, it was like opening a door that allowed my emotions to flood out. And in so doing, I was healing myself. And that's it for today, guys. But before you go away, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. And if you post it on social media, please tag me and our guest because we love seeing who is listening to the podcast. Thanks for being with us and I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. <laughs>